You're listening to audio from Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. For more information, go to cbcsavannah.com. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And we're going to come to the scripture. And I told the first service, uh, and and, and I'll tell you guys too, there's there's a lot going on in people's lives. Um, And I don't know where you're at right now. just, you know, for me, there's just there's personal heaviness going on, just life and just busyness and just decisions and struggles that's just weighing. You know, if you, so usually you say, how are things going? I'd say, oh, man, it's awesome. If you were to ask this week about how things going, man, I'm, I'm here. And some of you are there, right? I mean, if I asked you and you're honest and your spouse was like, don't you say anything, but I mean, if you... You'd, some of you are in great places. You're like, man, I got into the college I want to go to. I'm getting married in the fall. I got the job I want to. That's awesome. That's some of us. And others of us are making it. You know what? That's okay. That's life, right? If you always expect to be on top of the mountain, then you will be greatly disappointed when you do finally come down. And so we're going to pray. And just my, my prayer for us is that the word would just be just fresh and just like fresh water, fresh manna to us this morning that it would encourage you like it encouraged me, um, that it would move you to worship, that, that Christ would, in the end, like we just sang, be exalted in whatever's going on, right? And so if you guys bow your heads, here's what the Apostle Paul just encourages us with. He says, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Father, I pray for our time in the Scripture You are the exalted one. Uh, Your son came to glorify your name. You glorify his name. Uh, I pray as we just kind of come to the scripture, Lord, please make it alive to us. It is living. It is active. It is adequate for every good work for us. And so help me to, by your spirit, may your spirit fall in such a way that this is just life-giving, that the point of the word and the purpose of which you have given it to us to sanctify us in truth, that that would happen and that your people would walk away wherever they're at. Maybe they're, it's a train wreck in their life right now and there's some of that and maybe it's great, but whatever it is that, that people would come out saying Jesus is enough and that we would be just grateful for the grace and love that you have shown us. Help me with that. As we sent last week one of our own to Morocco for two years to minister to those following Islam, I just pray for Sarah. I pray that you would use her ministry there. I pray that you would grow her. I pray that you would protect her from the enemy and that she would have a, just a two years where the gospel is spread to a people who don't know Jesus. And so use her and I thank you that we could be on her team and be part of what you're doing in the Middle East in a place that it is hostile to Jesus. Um, just again, Lord, please meet us in a special way in the scriptures right now. It's in your name I pray, amen. Thanks, you guys can have a seat. We are in Luke chapter nine for like the 13th week. I mean, I didn't know how long this chapter was gonna be. I mean, it's, we've been here forever since I was like driving, got my driver's license, it feels like. Um, and actually, we've only been in the, in the Gospel of Luke for, this is our 23rd week. It feels like we've been in it for 75 years. And we'll get through it one day when Jesus comes back. Um, what do you look like when you're at your worst? And I'm not talking about ladies, like you wake up and the makeup's on your ear, and I'm not talking about that, right? Okay. 
All right. Oh, yeah, we're being real in here this morning, folks. Get with it. But, but what, it, what did you look like when you were at your worst as a person? Right? Maybe you're a teenager. Maybe you're, you know, been married 40 years. You're like, I don't really have a worst. Yeah, just ask your spouse. Like, he's got a worse. I've seen it. Maybe it was on the way to church this morning when you were cursing everybody to get out of your way so you could come worship Jesus. Maybe that was your worst, right? Honking on the horn. Come on, are you honking to the, you know, I'll hail the power of Jesus' name, you know, for your wife to come out, right, and the kids. What is your worst? We're gonna look at a text this morning, and you could entitle it, The Disciples at Their Worst. I mean, just when you think they couldn't be any dumber, just when you think they couldn't get any further, it's like, nope, they can go further, right? And, and it's real easy for us to step back and say, yeah, man, Peter and James and you morons, they don't know what they're doing. I, but here's the reality. They are us, all right? They are us. The disciples at their worst is CBC at its worst. Their struggles, their traps they fall into, the very things that we're going to see in the text today, it's you and it's me. It's all the same. But here's what's also the same. There is a same Savior who is standing there with them as he is standing with us today. And in our mess and when we're at our worst, he is doing the same thing he did for them. He is graciously pointing them back to the truth. No, guys, not this, this, time and time and time again. So my goal for us this morning is this, is we can I really continue in this idea of a live church and a, and a living church, is don't just see Peter and James and John and all these guys, see you. Identify yourself in there. Okay, because these issues are the same issues we, we deal with. But then, don't just stop there. Then hear the words of the Savior where he says, no, 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 not this, but this. Because we don't want to be the church at its worst. We want to be the church at its best. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning as we're in Luke 9. And there's really just kind of three big picture core ideas. And the way we'll do it is I'll just kind of unpack the text, highlight these three big areas that these guys are train wrecked in, and then we'll come back and look at Jesus and hear from the Savior as he kind of points us in the right direction. All right? So here's where we've been. We've been in this book 22, 23 weeks. We've called it Fallen Rising because the way you respond to Jesus, that's, that's really how he's going to respond to you. There will be an exaltation or there'll be a falling, right? And we've seen that in the kingdom, everything's flipped upside down. You want to be the greatest, you need to be the least. You want to be rich, you need to be poor, right? And that's the idea of Fallen Rising. And, and we've been kind of tracking with Jesus. We are about three years into his ministry now. And last week we saw he takes his little community group of Jesus, James, John, and Peter. And they go up on a mountain. And on that mountain, it's, they see the glorified Jesus, and it's just like just tremendously, uh, just awe-inspiring, and, and they, they work through that, and they see Elijah there, and Moses there, and the father says, this is my son, and then it kind of goes away. Well, they eventually got to come down off the mountain, right? Everyone has mountaintop experiences, went to youth camp, went to young, went to Windy Gap, went to marriage conference, had a great Sunday, had Easter, but here's the real deal. You can't live on the mountain, right? You know this? Right, you know, we win the championship, we gotta go back home. Eventually, you gotta come down the mountain. And so Peter and James and John and Jesus are gonna come down the mountain, and just like everybody else, when you come down the mountain, you know what they're gonna find? A train wreck, right? You go out on a date with your husband, everything's awesome, great steak, great movie, great night, whatever, but you gotta go home to the kids. That's coming off the mountain, right? He's gonna come off the mountain, and he's going to find a mess, right? So let's jump in our text. Verse 37. And the next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And so when you, put, when you put all the gospel accounts together, Matthew, Mark, and Luke cover these three things, right? So Jesus and, and his boys are coming down the mountain. And what you find out is the nine other guys that were left behind, they have just stirred it up. It is, it is a, it's like if you told your kids, we're going to be gone for eight hours. Here's some jolt cola, right? Here's some balloons and here's the remote. And if you have kids, you know that that is just three things that will blow up a house. You're like, you don't know how balloons, single people, can be so evil. You just wait till God gives you kids because balloons are wicked. 
right? When there's more than one child, right? See, right? And Jolt Cola, for those in the 80s, twice caffeine, half the sugar. Now they have Monster. We had Jolt, whatever. But that's the idea. You do that, it's going to be chaos. Jesus leaves these nine boys on their own. Boom, chaos, right? Chaos. And so the Gospel of Mark says that Jesus comes down the, the mountain, and all these people are like, they run up to him, and they're just yelling, and he looks over, and the nine disciples are in a fight with, like, the priests and the pastors of the day. And it's just like, what have I done, right? You go off the mountain into that. And so a man out of this crowd that runs up to him says, teacher, I beg you to look at my son. He's my only child. Please help my boy, right? He, he, he's got a son, verse 39 says, that a spirit seizes him. Suddenly it cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and it shatters him and will hardly lead him. He's got a little boy, eight, nine, 10. My youngest is nine. He just turned nine. We had like seven birthday parties this week. It was ridiculous, but either way. I'm looking at my nine-year-old yesterday. This tiny little guy looks like me. He's my mini-me. And I'm thinking, what if this was my only son? And, and randomly out of nowhere, a demon just kind of comes on him and starts making him go into epileptic seizures. And then and Matthew and Mark's gospel say that the, that the demon would sometimes try to drown him. And at other times, would try to throw him in the fire. And at other times, would make him mute and deaf. Can I imagine as a dad, that's my boy, and I can do nothing about it, and I'm wondering, is this going to ever end? Am I going to have to live like this for the rest of my life? That Just randomly, we're eating dinner, and all of a sudden, boom, this happens? Can you imagine the devastation and the hopelessness? But then when he hears that there's a couple guys running around, and they're casting out demons, and they're healing people, and now there's some hope? Are you kidding me? And so what does he do? He goes to the disciples, the nine disciples, and he comes up. And you can imagine how that conversation went. Can you guys do something? My son, he's, he's demon. This demon keeps attacking him. And the disciples are like, help. That is what we do. In fact, demons are our speciality. In fact, we just, in chapter nine, the beginning, remember Jesus sent them out to cast out demons and to heal and so they're like, hey, we, you are in luck. We are all certified and demon casting out. In fact, we all passed. I mean, old boy got a C, but we are all good. So show us the boy. And he's just got hope for the first time. And so they come to this, this boy. And, you know, Matthew steps up. I got this. Nothing. And then Thomas is like, no, 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 Matthew, you're, you're doing it wrong. Remember? And he steps up. Nothing. And Andrew, Peter's brother, is like, no, I got it. And they work their way all through all nine. And none of them can do anything. They can't do anything. So the guy tells Jesus, I begged your disciples to cast it out. But they couldn't. So now the man is uber frustrated. The disciples are fighting. And you're doing it wrong. And then the scribes and the Pharisees are all laughing. And there's a crowd around them. And it's just a big mess with seven-year-olds with jolt cola and balloons in their hands. And it's blown up. And Jesus comes down to this. And this man is just desperate, and so Jesus responds. And, and it's a shocking response, y'all. It says, oh, faithless and twisted generation. The idea of faithless is those who don't believe. And perverted is the word for twisted. How long do I, how long do I have to be with you and bear with you? How long? And, the, and his frustration is in the fact that no one has any faith. No one has any faith. In fact, if you read Mark's account, the man says to Jesus, Jesus, if you can do something, and Jesus is like, whoa, 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 if? What's this if? All things are possible for those who believe. And then the man says, please help, my, I believe, help my belief. In, in Matthew's gospel, the disciples, after this whole thing kind of washes over, they come to Jesus and say, you know, Jesus, what? What was the problem there? I mean, we all did what you told us to do. What's the, what's the deal? Why were we not able to do it? And, and Jesus says, because you don't believe, because you have no faith. And then Mark, he says, and you don't pray. I mean, you thought you could go up against Satan and his boys, and you don't even talk to me? Who do you think you are? Right? And so Jesus tells the man, bring your son here. And while he was coming, the demon throws him to the ground. Because remember, the demons know who Jesus is. They, they are created by him. They were angels at one time. So they know the Son of God. And when see, he sees Jesus coming, he starts 
flipping out and throwing him in and Jesus just rebukes him and with a word, the demon is gone. He's able to do what the disciples couldn't do and he gives him back to his father. So what's the problem here? What is the disciples at their worst? What is us at our worst? Here's problem number one, self-sufficiency. It's that idea, I got my demon casting out card. I got this, I've done this before. I don't need any help. What are you going to teach me? How are you going to help me? I'll handle this myself. Many of you, your kids are of age and and older now, and some of you remember this. We're experiencing this now that I'm I'm teaching my oldest two children to drive. And it is amazing to me that I've been driving for 20-something years. I don't even know. I can't do the math in my head right now, but driving for 25, six years, and I have a 16-year-old that's sitting next to me who's been driving for 30 seconds, and they think they know how to drive better than me. Dad, I know. Dad, I know. No, you don't know, because you just ran over the curve, and you've already ran over my little five that stands outside my thing, so I think maybe you don't know, but that's us. I know. I got this. I don't need any help. What are you going to teach me? I'm the expert. Is that ever you? I'm going to fix my kids. I'm going to fix my spouse. I'm going to handle this circumstance. I'm going to take care of this financial issue. I'm going to conquer this sin. Really? Are you? Here's the result of self-sufficiency. Every time. Every time. Write it down. It's defeat. It's defeat. It's, It's being frustrated. It's discouragement. It leads to even more defeat and not listening and not getting it. In fact, the very next thing happens. So it says they're all astonished. They're blown away by the majesty of God and the power of God. And they're all marveling. And Jesus says to his disciples, he's looking at these 12 men. He says, let these words sink into your ears. How many dads have said that? All right, listen to me, rockheads. Let this sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Can he be any clearer? Right? And it's, what's that? They didn't understand the saying, and it was concealed from them so that they may not perceive it. And then notice, they're afraid to ask him. They're they're fine with being ignorant. Well, I guess they got this. I know know what he means. I I got this. I'm not going to say anything. Right? It's, it's, It's this the ugliness of self-sufficiency and, and being willing to stay ignorant because I got this, right? It's them at their worst, it's us. And you think, well, maybe they'll learn now because Jesus kind of handed it to them and they're gonna learn, they're gonna get better, right? Wrong. This is gonna get uglier. Look what happens next. This is great. I love this. This is like my house. An argument arose among them as to which one was the greatest. I mean, can you imagine And Mark and Matthew kind of help you put the pieces together. And so in Mark's gospel, Jesus is kind of out front and they're kind of behind like fighting, but they're trying to keep it quiet because they don't want him to know. But they're like, if Peter's like, if I I was there, I would have knocked that demon out. You'll have just weak sauce. We got to go be on the mountain with Jesus and you guys were all left behind because you're second class. I mean, they're just fighting. And they get to the place and Jesus is like, what were y'all fighting about? And everyone's like, whoa, I don't know. And then finally, someone has the guts, the gall to say, Jesus, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Will you tell us? I mean, can you imagine? These guys just got their tails handed to them. They lost 100 to zero. And now they're talking about who the MVP is. I mean, it's, it's absurd, right? And what's really amazing to me is they're, they're scared to ask Jesus what he means when he says he's going to be defeated and hand it into, uh, into men's hands. But they're not afraid to ask the Son of God who the greatest is? How warped. How crazy. And so Jesus, he doesn't even answer. He doesn't even respond to that. He just picks up a kid. It's like, he takes a child and puts it in front of him. And by his side, and he says, and understand, children in that day were the lowest of low. In the Greco-Roman culture, they were the least valuable, right? They, they were, it, was, it was the servant's job to take care of the kids. It was far below. The disciples would never go and serve in the nursery because, whoa, we got important things like demon casting out. Well, we thought we did, but we couldn't do it, but we used to be able to do it. 
and we have to teach and heal. We would never serve so low. So Jesus gets his kid and says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives the Father whom he sent me. And he explains, whoever is least among you is the one who is great. Who least significant is the greatest. And the disciples were like, what? I'm not going to serve in the nursery. And here's why. Problem number two. Problem of self-seeking. Self-exaltation. I want to sit next to Jesus. I'm the most important. I need to be there, not you. You ever see that in the church? I'll do something as long as I can be seen. Right? As long as my voice can be heard. My opinion matters the most. When you do things my way, things are good. My kids are the most important person on this team, in this class, in your, in your Sunday school deal. Why doesn't my kid get the lead in the thing? Right? I mean, it, it, it's, it's, just, it's us. I deserve this. I need to be heard. My opinion needs to matter. And the result, y'all, of self-seeking, of, of, of self-promoting, you know what it is? It is disunity. It is discord. It is competition. We see this. Your kid plays on a team or you've been on a team and there's a prima donna. It's the guy who thinks his name should be, you know, he'd be the number one scorer. He, he doesn't care how the team does, but his stats, as long as he scores 30, as long as he goes three for four. And, and usually the team is a wreck. And they get beat by teams that aren't as good. Why? Because they can't play together because they got one guy who cares. He blows up the whole deal. You've seen a house where a six-year-old, making that six-year-old happy is the only thing that matters. And it just makes the house a mess. Because you can't make a six-year-old happy for more than like 30 seconds. Unless you give them Jolt Cola. And then they'll be happy for a while. But it's a mess. You've been in a community group where one person feels like their opinion matters and they're always on talk. And that person just talks and talks and talks and talks and talks and no one else gets a word in and no one comes back because that person blows up the deal because it's all about them. It's, it's, that's just the way it works. And that's the disciples. Who's the most important? Who's this? And it's, it's, it's like middle school. I mean, I'm reading this. I'm like, this is like middle school. I mean, look what happens next. John says, master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. And he, it's like he's like wanting Jesus to say, a boy, Johnny, where'd I go? I mean, yeah, that guy's suffering from a demon, but you, you, you stopped him from helping. That's what I'm all about. I mean, how warped. He's saying, Jesus, you, he doesn't have his demon casting out card that you gave us. And since he doesn't follow us, I told him to stop helping people. Helping people is bad unless Jesus tells you to do it the way we do it. I mean, how warped is that? It's competition. Ever see Christians guilty of competition? No. They don't, they don't care. Is so-and-so at your church? Yeah, they used to be at our church. They're a jerk. Just so you know, they're a jerk. I get that all the time. Some of y'all are jerks, I guess. I don't know. I, it, it, it's just people mad. They don't do it the way we do it. I mean, if they were really Christian, they would never work out to sweating with the 80s. They would only work out to praise and worship music because true Christians only listen to Chris Tomlin when they're running and not Bon Jovi. And if you were really a Christian, you would, my quiet time's like 75 minutes and I get on my concordance and I got my commentary and I got my Greek text and I got this. And this is what real Christianity looks like. And you over there, you spend six minutes reading our daily bread because you have four kids and they're a different place. That's not real Christian. That, that's not real good. This is the way it is. This is what real Christian, and, and that's them. It's middle school, right? It's middle school. And and this is what James tells us. I mean, these fights and competition and conflict. Jesus' brother says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? You know what causes it? You. That's what causes it. Your passions are at war with you. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot have. Look, some, some of you, every relationship in your life, there's conflict conflict in marriage. I'm not talking about just like everyone has some conflict, but conflict in marriage, conflict with the kids, conflict with your in-laws, conflict at work, conflict with the, the baseball team, conflict with the neighborhood committee, conflict with this, that, and the other. If there's always conflict and you're like, man, I don't know what's wrong. You know what's wrong? 
use wrong. And you might, oh, but they did this and they did. No, it's probably you. You're the common denominator. And that's hard to hear, I know. But you don't see it like them because you're so self-seeking. It's about you. It's about you. I mean, if you're fighting constantly, y'all, and with non-Christians, you're like, man, I'm going to tell them about Jesus, and I'm going to prove everything wrong, and they're not going to believe in this and this and this, and all you do is get in fights with non-Christians, and you think that's good? I'm just practicing apologetics, giving a ready defense. Well, you know what Peter says about that? He says that you're to give a ready defense with gentleness and respect. So you fighting with everybody is not actually being obedient. It's probably not even about Jesus. It's probably more about you. You got another notch on your spiritual belt because you just yelled at the guy who doesn't believe in Jesus. And, and that's the heart of it. Self-seeking. And, and when you do it, you actually miss what God's doing. Look what, what Jesus says. He says, don't stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. You're actually stopping what I'm doing. And some of you are so focused on what everyone uh, is doing, you're missing what God is doing. It's just what we do in marriage, isn't it not? Those who are married, I mean, you got two people that really in the end want the same thing. They want to be content with, with each other and they want to love each other and they want to have this, this joyful relationship. But sometimes we are so set on my way and my opinion that we would rather have my way and make things miserable than the end game, which is joy in marriage and glorifying God. And we'll die on this hill so that I win, right? And, and we got idea. We, we all want the best for our kids, right? We want our kids to, to be godly and to know Christ and to be successful. This is our desire. But listen, in case you didn't know, men and women are different and have different opinions about things. Just so you know. Dads and moms typically have different opinions. So I will say, kids, I want you to do this, 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 this. Clean your room, blah, blah, blah. And my wife will say, yeah, you can do that later. Right? And I'm like, no, 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 they need to do that now. And no, we need to do that later. And we can have this big conflict on, no, 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 this is the way, this is how they're going to be successful. They're going to work hard. They're going to suffer and sweat and you know, be dehydrated. And that's good. It causes character. And she's like, oh, you've had three minutes. You want a break? You want some water? And that is different. Our end game is the same. We, we want this. We want them to go get a job. We want them to move out. We want them to be off our insurance. We want all those things. But sometimes I can get so caught up in my desire. See, this is why this affects not just church. This is marriage and relationships and job and sports teams and everything. And, and you got to ask the question, am I more about me than what God is doing, right? Church at its worst. Disciples at its worst. Self-sufficient, self-seeking. And you're thinking, surely they get it now. I mean, John just got rebuked by Jesus. Surely he's going to get it. And I'm thinking about this this week. It struck me. Remember, this, this book is written to a man named Theophilus. The whole book's for this one guy. And he's got to be thinking, this is the apostles we're following right now? These guys are crazy. They're crackheads. I can't believe it. That, I mean, it's got to be what they're, he's thinking. He's thinking, man, these guys are in charge. We're in trouble if these guys are over the church because it's such a mess. Look what happens next. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And that's a, it's a Greek idiom that means Jesus was resolute. He is set on Jerusalem. This is what he's came to do. This is what he's came to accomplish. And so the entire rest of this gospel are all about Jesus getting to Jerusalem and what he does there. All right. and, here, and here's what you need to know. It's kind of cool. Um, the guys up there did some funky video stuff. So here, here's a map. All right, Jesus right now with his disciples in this area. He was just in Caesarea Philippi. He was in Capernaum. He's in Galilee. This is the Sea of Galilee, right? That's where they go fishing. That's a lot of stuff. To get to Jerusalem in the south, okay, you got two options. You can go I-95 south, right through Samaria, right? Okay, or what most Jews did is they took the scenic route, not because they liked the desert, because they hated Samaritans, right? It's like, Let's be honest, the roads of South Carolina are horrendous, right? No one wants to go 95 North because they're horrible. So it almost is worth it to drive to Atlanta, go up through Tennessee if you want to get to North Carolina, because at least it's pretty. That way you avoid I-95. That's what they would do, because they hated South Carolina, okay? 
So they went all the way around and they would come in across here. That's what they would do. But Jesus is not going to do that. He is going to go right through Samaria. And what you need to understand is the reason they hated South Carolina, a.k.a. Samaria, was because they were racists. That's the bottom line. They hated the Samaritans. They saw the Samaritans as a half-breed of Jew because when, when the nation was taken away 700 years earlier, the Jews mixed with the Assyrians and they, caused, they, they had this mixed blood and so they were not pure Jews anymore in their mind and that was the Samaritans and they hated them. They thought they're half-breeds. We don't like them. And the Samaritans hated the Jews because they looked down on them and they thought everything is all about Jerusalem. You gotta go to Jerusalem. And they're like, why do we have to go to Jerusalem? We don't wanna go down there with those snobs, so we'll make our own thing. And so they had this religious, per- they had this religious difference, they had this political difference, they had a racial difference and it's does that sound like the church racism sometimes political differences sometimes you know socially different spectrums I mean this is right out of where the church is in the last two three years especially and so there's all this tension and Jesus is going to go right through it right And, and here's what happens I love this he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations so they come in and say, hey, Jesus, the one from Nazareth, the one that, that people have been talking about, he's going to come because he's on his way to Jerusalem. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. He's going to Jerusalem? Forget him then. We don't want him coming here. He's not staying at our Motel 6. He can't have any of our food. You tell him to take him and himself, and he can go to another town. We don't want him. Why? Because his face is set towards Jerusalem. So not only do the, do the Jews hate the Samaritans, the Samaritans are hating them right now because they're like, well, we don't want him here. And I, here's James and John. All right, remember, they just were in a community group with Jesus on the mountain, seeing his glorified body. They just saw Moses. They just saw Elijah. John just had his, hand, his tail handed to him by Jesus. And they say this, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and burn their brains out? Right? And I'm thinking, if I'm Jesus, I'm like, I'd like to see you try that. Go ahead and try that. I mean, you couldn't cast out the demon, and now you think you're Thor? <laughs> Go ahead and try. I mean, but think about that. I, it's, how warped is this? I mean, what, they, what have they seen in the last three years that would possibly even make them think that Jesus would do this? Yeah, go ahead and burn them all. The animals too, the cats, the dogs, the donkeys, melt their brains. Go ahead, guys. That's what I've been doing all over Israel these past three years. I mean, how warped and how blind. They didn't just hear what Jesus said, I'm going to be rejected by men. Like right here. This is an example. They haven't learned anything. But that's a natural progression. When there is self-sufficiency and then there's self-seeking, what's the progression? Self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. It's amazing that on every occasion in this text, the disciples think they're right. Did you get that? They think they're right in every occasion. So when Jesus comes down and says, you know, you perverted generation, they're like, well, why couldn't we do it? We were doing everything right. We're right. When they're fighting with each other, they think they're right. So much so that they're like, Jesus, tell us. Give us the answer. Who gets to be the best? They think they're right. John thinks he's right when he says, I stopped this guy. They think they're right that God wants to melt these people's brains. They're so blinded to the very thing. Here's, what's the, here's the most incredible thing. They are mad towards the Samaritans. Why? Because they're like, the Samaritans are racists. They won't let Jesus come because they don't, they, he's going to Jerusalem. What's their problem? They're racists. They want to melt the Samaritans' brains for being racist when they ultimately hate the Samaritans because they're Samaritans. That's why they have no grace. There's no compassion. And this is why people, y'all, think the church and Christians are a bunch of morons because we will stand in judgment for, over people for things that are lesser than what we are doing ourselves. And it's just hypocrisy. And the result of self-righteous people, let me just tell you right now, it is no compassion. It is despising people. It is looking down on people, right? So that you're like, you see a guy who gets caught in sin and your response is, well, serves him right. That we see a bunch of folks who are killed in the Middle East and we're like, well, good. That's what they get. We see people arrested for something and we're glad. 
And I'm not saying the law doesn't need to do its job or the military doesn't need to do its job. That's not what I am saying. But I am saying that if you find yourself rejoicing in the suffering of other people, then you are self-righteous. Right? You are. And Jesus simply responds and says, guys, he rebukes them, turns around, you boys, hush. And they go to another village. We will find another Motel 6. And he moves on, finds another place. No, no, I'm coming back to get him. Don't you worry. And, and look, if that was me, I mean, I'd be, I'd be like Popeye. That's all as I can stand. I can't stand no more. Get me 12 new guys. All right, start over. You guys go back and fish and collect taxes. I need some new guys, new blood. But the beauty of the Savior, when they are at their worst and when you and I are at our worst as he is there and he's saying, no, 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 guys, not this, but this. And he is patient with them and he is gracious with them and he is gracious with us. And he doesn't just identify the problem. Sometimes this is what we do. We just identify the problem, but we don't give the solution. Jesus identifies the problem and he points them to the solution every time. And the text gives, you know, it gives the big picture help and it gives them very specifics, right? It gives the big picture solution to all these issues. Self-righteousness, self-seeking, self-everything. And and then it gives you very particular, specific. Let Let me focus real quickly on the big picture solution and then get real practical with us. The big picture solution is seen in, in his statement, I'm, I'm setting my face towards Jerusalem. Two times. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to do what? To die for the sins of man, but not just that, to be resurrected, but not just that, to be ascended back to heaven. He has to get back to heaven. Why? Because then he could send you what? The Holy Spirit. Everything is about accomplishing in Jerusalem and then going back to heaven so he can send us the helper so that now you have everything you need in the Holy Spirit to fight self-righteousness, to fight self-sufficiency, to fight self-seeking in God the Holy Spirit. Everything you need. So much so that six months later, these same dudes, these train wreck of dudes, they are completely changed because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And so you see kind of the similar stuff happening where they're facing fierce opposition. And instead of fighting about it, you know what they're doing? They're on their face praying together. There's a oneness. And instead of asking that God would just melt the brains out of their opposition, they're just praying for strength and perseverance and boldness. And then even John, you realize that John was, is the son of thunder. When you read John's epistles, he's a big softy. He's like this guy, love, 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 love. He's a love doctor in the New Testament. He's completely radically changed. You're like, who is this cat? It's a night and day. And he actually, in Acts chapter 8, it says that John goes back into Samaria, the very place he wanted to bring down, you know, the AC 130 kind of thing. He goes back to Samaria and preaches the gospel probably to the very same village that he wanted to melt their brains. He loves them now. He wants them to repent and turn to Jesus now. I mean, that's what the Spirit of God does. That's what God came to do, is to give you the Spirit. So the big picture is the solution is you have everything you need. But let me just get real specific with you real quick. What's the solution to self-sufficiency? It's, it's faith and dependence. That's the solution. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's, it's rejecting the idea that you got it all together. Well, I've been this, I've been that, I do this, I do that. Going through the motions, right? It's, it's dependence. And here's what I'm learning. It's, it's, you know, this job sometimes is mountaintop and this job sometimes is valley. And there's just as many valleys as there is mountaintops. And I am learning in the valley, y'all, that my seminary and my 10 years of being pastor of this church, they have nothing to offer when I'm in the valley. And the only thing that brings me grace and strength is when I get on my face and I cry, God, I need you to act. Help me. I need help. That's the only thing that gets me through, y'all. Let me just tell you, when I'm in the valley. It's not my experience. It's not my smartness. I don't got that. I, use the, I just use the word smartness. That's not even a word. 
I don't think it's a word. Someone Google it for me. See, in our culture, the place of strength is confidence and self, you know, self-worth and all these things. And you need to feel great about yourself. You need, to, you need to be a take charge kind of guy. That is not real power. That's actually where the disciples were, and they fall on their face. You know where real power is? It is independence. It is saying, help. God, I, don't, I cannot change my husband. I cannot change my heart. I cannot change my kids. I cannot, I don't know what I'm supposed to do in this circumstance. I have no power. I have nothing. That is actually the that place of, of power in the Bible, right? I got this, this eating disorder. I, I, I'm doing this, this, this alcohol issue. I got these pain pills. I cannot break the addiction. God, help. That's the place of power. It's a place of strength. And, and, and the disciples, here's what's amazing. They're going through the motions. They're doing all the right stuff. They're saying all the right things. I guarantee they're over this boy with a demon and they are trying to cast out this demon in the name of Jesus just the way Jesus taught them and they have no power. Why? Because they have no dependence really. Because really they're doing it and oh, I got this. I've done this before. I've taught this lesson. I've done this thing. I've read the book. I know how to do this. And they're not actually talking to Jesus. You wanna know real quick, you know what the number one indicator of, of whether or not you're walking in dependence or independence? It's not your quiet times. That the length of the verses you're memorizing, I'll tell you the number one indicator of you are walking in independence or dependence is your prayer life. Boom, right there. Mic drop. I don't have a mic, so I take this off and throw it. I mean, <laughs> because if you're asking Jesus, I need your help. I don't know what to do. I need your help. I know I read this book, but this book is not working and I'm trusting in this book and not in your spirit. It's all about that. It's those who keep asking, keep knocking, keep seeking, keep casting. That's where the power is, right? So a, a self-sufficient church doesn't pray. A church that is as powerful as a church that prays. A people that are powerful. I'm not talking about on the mountain, 70 hours. I'm just talking about frequent prayer, little prayer grams. Lord, I need help. Lord, I need wisdom. Lord, I need guidance. That's the first thing. What do you deal, how do you deal with self-serving? You know what you do? You serve but you serve those who actually don't serve you. You actually give to people who d- cannot give anything back. That doesn't make you look better. Everyone wants to, well, I'll volunteer and be on stage. I'll volunteer to be looking important as long as I get my name in the bulletin. The flowers today are, in, are dedicated in the, by the people that are sitting in the front row and are wearing bright colors so that you see them, Right? That if we're always giving to be seen, then it's emptiness. What we serve, and the point of Jesus saying, here, here's a child, serve this one. It's not to plug the nursery. Although, here's the reality. If we really believe what Jesus says, if we really believe it, y'all, do you know what? We would have so many people serving in the nursery, we would be sending people home. You know Why? Because if you're giving animal crackers to a three-year-old, Jesus says, you are literally giving animal crackers to me. If you are reading a story about me to a seven-year-old, you are actually reading that story as if I was there. If you're leading singing or hitting slides or, or playing funny games with middle schoolers, you're actually doing it for me, this exalted, glorified Savior. And so if that's true, and I think it is because Jesus just said it, then we should have people like, I need to serve the kids now because I need to serve Jesus. And I'm not shamelessly plugging the nursery, although I kind of am. But I'm trying to get you to see is if, if you're gonna, you want to crush self-seeking, then serve in a way that you can't be seen. Give to people without putting your name on it. Right? Because we have a ton of people. We got stay-at-home moms that are serving. We got CEOs that are serving. We got smart PhD doctors that are serving in obscurity. I love that about this church. And then we have, you know, single mom just tearing it up in the back, serving in obscurity. And Jesus says, those are the greatest right there. Who are they? The greatest. And you'll find out in heaven how great they were. I love that. Serving, and it doesn't just have to be church. I'm not just talking about church. You could, you could volunteer to be the, the person at the concession stand of your kid's team. It's a miserable job, all right? Here's a pickle and a butterfinger. That's disgusting. You know, I mean, yeah, but 
Hey, it's serving in obscurity. I have a college degree. You want me to do that? Well, if you have a college degree, you should be able to know that $1.25 minus 75 is this, but you can't do it, right? But that's the point, serving obscurity. Maybe you're mowing the lawn of the, of the widow in your yard or you're taking, there's this new couple in your community group that hasn't been out on a date in three weeks and so, so you're gonna watch their kids for free so they actually can go to someplace other than McDonald's, right? Because babysitting's expensive for young parents. Maybe it's that, right? I don't know. Maybe it's volunteer to pray at your school, being a big brother, be, going to an after-school program. I, I don't know, but it's gotta be someplace that doesn't make you look great. It's serve. It's defer your preferences. And marriage is all about deferring. You wanna watch a war movie. She wants to watch a rom-com. Once in a while, you both gotta do what both. Honey, we'll watch, you know, When Harry Met Sally again. We'll watch Sleepless in Seattle again if you'll watch Band of Brothers later. But it's about deferring. It's about serving when, when you get nothing out of it. Honey, can you go get my phone? No. That's why we have those kids. <laughs> Call them. Uh, but no, it's getting the phone time and time again. Honey, can you find my shoes? Well, if you put your shoes in the same spot, you know, we've had this conversation. If you put your shoes in the same spot, why is one shoe upstairs and one in the garage? How does that even happen? <laughs> but it's finding the shoes. It doesn't get you anything. It just gets you to be able to serve. That's, that's the point. This is how it practically looks. And it's going to look different for you. But that's my point. Jesus is so practical, isn't he? Right, don't be seeking yourself. And so then the final solution, the final problem, self-righteousness. I didn't have a, a good one word I couldn't think of, so I, 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 here's how I termed it, look up. And here's what I mean, not look up. Woo. It's stop looking at yourself so much and thinking how great you are. Stop comparing yourself to everyone else. Right, and start looking out and seeing that there's different people with different perspectives. Right? You gotta look up. Here, you need to realize, we have a tendency, and this is just human nature, I get it, but do we only hang out with those people that are like us, all right? And that's fine, but all we do is affirm each other and tell, us how great, tell each other how great and right we are. You need to go, go spend some time, especially if you're a Christian in the church, especially this church with so much diversity, you need to go spend time with other people of other cultures, other uh, you know, socioeconomic statuses. You know, 62-year-old business guy, you need to go hang out a little bit with 21-year-old scad guy. And you're gonna realize, wow, I didn't know these people really existed. Both of you, you know, you're, both of you are gonna be like that. You're like, I, I never planned it. I guess we did find alien life on Mars eventually because these people are so different from each other. But that is actually good. Here, here's what I've learned last two years. Just as, let's, let's be honest, race relations in this, cult, in this culture, in this country are at an all-time low, at least in my lifetime. And I grew up in a very diverse place outside of Philadelphia. Uh, so, you know, that was my background. But I realized a lot of my preconceived notions were wrong, right? And I think I'm right because I'm self-righteous. And I would never say, oh, Fowler, you're a racist. But what I would say is I, I, I am blind to some of my own preconceived notions. So it's taken me hanging out with some of, some of my brothers from a different culture and background and to, to, to listen and to hear how much I really don't know and how much I'm wrong about what I think I know. Because I don't know what it's like to be a, a, a child of an immigrant in this country. I have no clue. I don't know what it's like to have parents or be a, have a single mom who makes minimum wage. I don't have, know what it's like to be a young male African-American in this country. And you know what? If I think I do just because I watch the news, then I'm a moron. And that's how I start looking down at people because, well, if they would just do X, then Y. We are so simplistic in our explanation. If, if they would just go do this, of course, this would never happen. We need to get beyond that shallowness as a church. And I'm not saying we have to agree on everything. You will never agree with everything with everyone. But we can at least listen and be compassionate. And say, hi, I never even thought of that. Okay? I get that. Right? I hear you. Because I, I, this is what I thought. And look, that's a place of compassion. That's a place where people aren't looking down their nose because you did this and I did this and this is, if, you're, if you wouldn't do this. That's... that's that's Jesus at the well with a Samaritan woman who's been married like 65 times and she's a popular guest on the Maury Povich show because her life is such a wreck. 
And Jesus is there showing her compassion when all the disciples are like, what are you doing? This is Jesus with the the Roman centurion who's a foreigner and he's showing compassion even though he's a conqueror of their nation and he's he's different. And he says, wow, this guy's got amazing faith. Y'all, we do not need to be a church that has it all together. What we need to be a church is a church of compassion, right? A place of compassion that we listen to each other. You don't have to agree with everybody, but you can at least listen and say, okay, get it. I'm not better than you, I'm just different, and that's good. Gotta get to that point. If we're gonna see, if the the church is the only hope, Jesus is the only hope for racial reconciliation in the world. Do you realize that, right? He is the Prince of Peace. The cross of Christ is the only solution to that division. It's not more education. It's not not some class. It's not some college course. Jesus Christ And if the people of God who have been covered by the blood of Christ can't come as one body, then then there is no hope. But there is, because that's what he has done. So I don't want to be the church at its worst. The church at its worst, self-sufficient, self-seeking, self-glorifying, self-righteous. What I want to be, and I hope you do too, is the church at its best. The church at its best is what? It's a praying church. It's a serving church. It's a compassionate church. And we're going to fall, and we're going to be like the disciples that are all, you know, can I be the best? Can I be the first? We're going to do that. But what do we do? We, we listen to the gracious Savior. He says, no, 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 not this, but this. Not this, but this. Right? That's what I want. For, that's my dream for us as a church. A praying, serving, compassionate church. All right? Let's stand and let's worship. Look, and this is a time for you to sing, to exalt Christ. Just if something landed somewhere that the Spirit is like, that's you, self-righteous. That's you, self-confident. That's you, not listening. Hey, this is a chance to own that, to tell Jesus, you know what, you're right. Help me, help me. Change me, change me. I've been doing this all by myself. I've been doing it on my own. I've been trying my hardest and I haven't trusted you. This is our opportunity to respond to that and to worship. Let me pray and we'll sing. Jesus, you are good, and we love you, and I pray for your church, Lord, to be a praying church, a compassionate church, a serving church. That's it. Man, that's that's a church where your spirit moves, so do that in us. If there's arrogance, give us humility. If there's confidence, give us faith. If there's self-seeking, give us service. If there's no compassion, give us compassion. For Christ's name's sake, I pray.